This is from Luke 24, 17 through 32. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the... Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You may be seated. morning. Um, if you're visiting, my name is Darren Carlson. I'm one of the pastors here. I will also make an impassioned and plea for life groups, only because this week we've been filming a little documentary on 50 years of our church, which we celebrate next month. And uh, pretty much every story we heard was, my life group rescued me when? And then dot, dot, dot. And there were many, many, many stories. And so I'll be honest, life groups are risky uh, because some of them are weird. And um, if you've been in a life group, you know what I'm talking about. And, um, but you've got to take a risk. You've, you've got to try, um, or you're just going to be by yourself. And that's worse. Um, speaking of videos, the one doing the photography and the videos this morning is Pete Hansen, uh, a dear friend of mine. We actually did a movie together. And it turned out so good that people would always ask me, like, well, what was your team and what was it like? And I was like, well, it was Pete. <laughs> that was it. So uh, we've been doing a short one here for, for the church. Uh, and he has done, I don't know, 20 missions films over, over the years. If you've seen Dispatches from the Front, he's currently doing one with a blogger named Tim Chalice on worship around the world. So I think he gets home to Greenville tomorrow, South Carolina, and then he goes to Zambia Tuesday. So uh, we're grateful, Pete, that you are here. Three quick announcements. One, there's a barn dance in two weeks. You need to sign up. Uh, live music, food, dance, and entertainment because the pastors will be dancing. Um, college students, tonight, 530 at my house. 
Uh, you have to RSVP for the sake of the amount of food that I'm going to need, and you eat, so I need to know. Uh, there are a few spots left. I think we've got 20 to 30, and there, you can have a few more. So come if you want to come and put me on record asking me whatever. And then October 6 and 7, uh, Bible Boot Camp. When we have a scholar come, you'll have to register for that as well. All that information's in, in the bulletin. This is uh, Dr. Willem van Gemmeren, a Dutch scholar, uh, going to teach the Psalms Friday night and Saturday. I highly recommend. I had him as a teacher. He's amazing. And the Dutch accent is just the cherry on top. All right. Okay. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we can gather uh, now around your word and uh, we can hear from you. We all want to hear from you. Your people want to hear from you. The world wants to hear from you. And so speak to us. What an audacious request. Please do it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm a sucker for online videos. Uh, It's a scroll hole for me. I just sit down and I just one, one, one. And probably the number one video on this list is when children get cochlear implants. I don't know if you've ever watched these. My, my, actually, my friends were one of the first viral videos uh, of this happening where uh, here comes the, the little girl. They uh, put it, the implant in. They turn it on. And mom goes, hello. And she smiles. And then what happens? Crying, crying, and more crying because she's heard her mom's voice for the first time. My second most favorite video is when colorblind people get those sunglasses for the first time. You know what I'm talking about? And here they come. Here comes the sunset, and everyone's excited. The family's bought them these uh, spectrum glasses, whatever they are. They put them on, and they start crying. And then they give them an apple, and they're like, wait, apples are red? And they're like, yeah, they're red. And they're just sobbing. I wonder if you see the Bible in all its color, if you hear it in all its fullness when it's speaking to you. Uh, I mean, if I'm going to be honest and you're going to be honest with yourself, I would guess that most of us do not come to the Bible with 20-20 eyesight. We come to it with black and white uh, vision instead of colored vision. We hear it, but we don't really hear it. You know, God is silent when the Bible is closed, right? It's not a book that is just written many years ago. It's a book that is speaking now. But it's not only silent when it's closed. It's silent when it's not read correctly. And so for the next 12 weeks, we are going to cover the entire story of the Bible. Now, if you're seeking God or you're a new Christian or you're just starting out, this is going to be really helpful for you because this is going to help put together the whole thing as one coherent unit. And if you've been a Christian for a while, this is going to remind you, what is the story? What are all these? I mean, is it like one story or there are lots of stories? And how do we put it all together? I just want to help you to read the Bible as if it is one story with many parts. Now, I had a friend uh, write an article recently about why Christians in the United States and really around the world don't read the Bible this way. Reason number one, we are consumeristic. That is, we judge churches based on what they give to us. The worship was terrible because I didn't feel anything. The preaching was awful. I didn't get anything from it. It's about us, right? It's about what what did the church give me? And so we come to the Bible and it's like, well, what did it give me this morning? Or we have this kind of anti-historical reading of the Bible. We come to it because we're in crisis and we kind of open it up like this. God, say something to me. 
And so you open it and you go, and then they smited the Egyptians and killed 20,000 people. Not that one. And then you come over here. That's how we read the Bible, right? Like this anti-historical, it's not really history. It's what it's saying to me. And so we look for principles on politics and marriage and child rearing and singleness and happiness. And the third reason is studying the Bible is hard. If you find yourself saying, oh, the Bible is so easy to understand, I'm guessing it's because you only read the Bible by yourself. Just read the Bible with one other person and start reading and be like, what do you think? And they start saying things. You're like, it doesn't say that. And they're like, yes, it does right here. I'm trying to get you away these next few weeks from asking, what does God have to say to me? To saying, what has God done? What has God done? Ed Clowney, who is uh, the late professor now of a seminary in the East Coast, highly influential in the mid-20th century, wrote these words. Only God could maintain a drama that stretches over thousands of years as though it was a day or hours. Only God could build a story where the end is, is anticipated from the beginning and where the guiding principle is not chance or fate, but promise. Human authors may build fiction around a plot they have devised, but only God shapes history to a real and ultimate purpose. You know, the Bible's written, is a complicated book. It's written over 1,600 years by, in three different languages by many different authors. It's got history. It's got poetry. It's got parable. It's got personal letters. It's got exhortation. It's got comfort. It's written during war. It's written during peace. It's written during exile. <laughs> it's written during conflict. It's written during persecution. It starts out as a group uh, in nomadic tribes. It ends in Roman domination. Now, if you are kind of new and you want to be able to divide the Bible, you know, you can just, the first five books, which is about, I'm just going to say right about that, is called the law. And then you have historical books after those five books. And that goes all the way to the book of Esther. That's about that much. That's the history of God's people. And then you have poetry, even though I don't know why we call it poetry. It's not all poetry, but Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon, Book of Job, and that, that's about that much. And then you have major and minor prophets, and we mean major, we mean they wrote a lot more than the other ones. And so we've got a few books that are long-winded over a long period of times, and then we've got short books, and so we call them major and minor. And then you have a break of a couple hundred years, and then in come these four books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have a history book, and then you've got a bunch of personal letters, mail, essentially, and then the book of Revelation. That's, that's the Bible. Now, you can read this in a lot of different ways, but is it simply a collection of stories that we just kind of take from? You know, here's this story, here's this story, here's this story. These are all examples to us, and this is how we're supposed to live, or it's something more. Now, when people ask me, what's the Bible about? I, could, I, I sometimes cheekishly uh, say this. Uh, the Bible's about this. Genesis 1 and 2, God created the earth. Genesis 3, Sin enters the world and destroys his creation in a variety of ways. And then in Genesis, Genesis 4 to Revelation 22, God undoes Genesis 3. That's the Bible. Or you could say the Bible is a story about redemption, that God is in particular redeeming his creation. And redemption just means delivering from slavery by the payment of a price. And so you could say, what's the Bible about? The Bible's about redemption. And so we're going to go this morning to the heart of the matter. What is the Bible about? And then over the next 12 weeks, over and over again, we say, here's what the Bible's about. Here's what the Bible's about. Here's what the Bible's about. So at the end of these 12 weeks, I hope to God that you can put your Bible 
together. Now, at the end of Luke, you can turn there. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel, last chapter. Luke is uh, summarizing the time after Jesus was crucified and uh, uh, risen. He's now, you know, kind of showed up among people. And Luke wants us to tell us something about these events right after Jesus is supposedly uh, raised from the dead. Now, before I get into it, just one note. Luke knew a lot of stories about the risen Jesus. He appears over 40 days. He appears to his disciples many times. He teaches them many things. And yet he only records three different meetups in one day. It just tells you how important Luke thinks these events are, that he, he could have, you know, he, he certainly knew other things. He's a great historian. He could have, you know, put together other stories and we would have had the same, like, oh my gosh. But instead, he has these three stories one of which is absolutely wild. You have the women, they've gone to the tomb, empty. Angels, the whole thing. Uh, he's not here, uh, he's risen. The, the women come back, they tell Peter, and now we know from another gospel, John's there too. Peter runs to the tomb. Tomb's empty, he comes back, he tells people. And now we have two people on the road to Emmaus, which is seven miles away, distraught and sad. And up saunters Jesus. And he asks, what are you talking about? And so first, blindness leads to dejection. Here's verse 17 and 18. One of them is named Cleopas. Luke doesn't say who he is, but historian from 150, now follow this, a a historian from 150 years later quotes another historian before him who interviewed the grandsons of the Apostle Jude, who says Cleopas is Jesus' uncle. So an historian interviewed another historian who interviewed the grandsons of Jude, the Apostle, who says Cleopas is Jesus' uncle. Now we know from John's Gospel, he's married to a woman named Mary. And so best guess, these two, husband and wife probably, are walking back home. After a devastating weekend, and I just mention that because every single time I've heard preaching on this and every single depiction of this are always two men walking on the road. And you know what? The text doesn't say. It just says Cleopas and someone else. So they had hoped there was a Messiah. They had supported Jesus. They believed in him. They needed to come to an understanding of what had happened. Jesus knows where they are. He sees their dejection, and he's going to slowly lead them out of their dejection, preventing them really at the beginning from seeing who he really is. So verse 17, what are you discussing together? Do you think Jesus doesn't know? Hey, guys, what are you talking about? So Cleopas turns to Jesus and says, don't you know what happened? I mean, it's kind of comical, right? And then Jesus says, verse 19, what are you talking about? What things have happened? I mean, on one sense, Jesus hasn't been in Jerusalem for a couple days, right? Like he hasn't been there. But he's like, oh yeah, tell me what's uh, been going on. So is this sarcasm? Is he probing them? Is he, what is he doing? I don't know. We read the story knowing the end, right? Like we read the Bible, we're like, well, we know where this is going. We actually know the ending. But Cleopas doesn't. His wife or whoever's with him doesn't. And so I'll just call out three things here. First, they're depressed. Verse 17, they stood still in their face with downcast. So you can imagine they're walking 
Jesus asks them what's up, and they stop walking, and their faces are, are down. Now, you know what this is, right? Like, you can be walking with a friend, and then they ask you a hard question. Do you keep walking? No, you stop. You stop, and you turn to them, and, you, and you, now your face is expressing how you feel, and then you start talking. They're, they're down. Now, verse 19 through 24, hilariously, they tell Jesus the gospel. Hey, don't you know what happened? There was this guy, Jesus. He was a prophet. True. He was powerful in word and deed. Do you know what this means? It means they actually saw him. This is not some like secondhand, thirdhand bystanders. These are people that actually knew him, that saw the miracles, that saw him teach, that knew the things that had gone on in the gospel. They knew more than we knew because they actually were there. There's more stories. We just don't have them. They had witnessed things. In verse 20, their religious leaders had handed them, him over to die. And so they're now saying, we don't understand what happened. The religious leaders who are supposed to protect us have sided with our oppressors, the Romans, and they have killed Jesus. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. Verse 22, and then women went to the tomb and it was empty. And then the angel said he was alive. And then our companion, that's Peter, they, he, he went down and saw the same thing. So here's my question. Why are they walking away from Jerusalem? Their friends have told them the tomb's empty. Peter has told them the tomb's empty, and they're walking away from Jerusalem? I mean, think about that. If you were a disciple of Jesus, I mean, let's say he really is the uncle, and you've seen Jesus since he was born, and he's been killed, and now there's an empty tomb you're walking the away from everything? Shouldn't you be walking back? What is going on? I thought about this for a while. I think what's happening is that people who want to believe bad news will not come off that bad news despite evidence. That people who are down, depressed, face down, there is no amount of objective evidence that will tell them the sun is shining, if it is. They just want to believe bad news. And you know what? For them, the empty tomb, which we celebrate every Easter, is bad. This is why if you go across the street and take a religion class, they'll say, you know, someone stole the body or, or uh, Jesus didn't really die because crucifixion wasn't that bad. And so they're disillusioned. That's where they are. There's no amount of fact to get them out of this. Second, it's all out in the open. Verse 18, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? In other words, everyone knows. Why don't you know? Where have you been? Jesus is like, trust me, I've been somewhere, okay? The Christians are sticking to the basic facts. And you know what? The basic fact was this. Nothing was hidden. Nothing was done in a corner. And in fact, let me, let me just... Highlight one spot where you see this, and this is 25, 30 years later, the apostle Paul is on a missionary journey, and he's on trial in front of Festus and in front of King Agrippa. And, you know, Paul shares the gospel, and he shares what happened to Christ, and then he shares what happened to him, and he shares what he's been doing, shares how Gentiles are becoming Christians. And Festus, the pagan ruler, says uh, in verse 18 of Acts 25, uh, Paul, um, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you insane. And so Paul looks at him because Festus thinks Paul's a joke and he says, Oh, no, no, Festus. 
verse 25, I'm not insane. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely. I'm convinced that none of that has escaped his notice because none of this was done in a corner. Isn't that interesting? The apostle Paul can say 25 years later, he knows it was out in the open. We didn't hide. Jesus wasn't hiding. People saw him. We didn't make this up. There were eyewitnesses. You could have, you could have talked to them. And the king knows it. Everyone who's around in Jerusalem knows what had happened. And this is why in religion classes, you'll have all these theories of obviously they saw Jesus, therefore he must not have died or someone must have stolen the body because there's no other way to describe, believe in an empty tomb if, because miracles don't really exist. You see, even the liberal scholars know that the tomb was empty or this thing wasn't going to get off the ground. So that's two. Wasn't done in the corner. And then last one, you can be two feet away from Jesus and not see him. There are two people on the road who believe the wrong story despite all the facts, the facts of Jesus' ministry, the fact of his crucifixion, and the fact that the tomb is empty. Now, one commentator said it better than me. I read it like five times. I was like, I need to share it. An experience of the living God was what they wanted, but though they came to him, he came to them and paced alongside them, yet their hearts were cold. An experience of the living God is what they wanted, but though he came to them and paced alongside them, their hearts were cold. What is that? You may, you may know another story uh, when Jesus is being crucified, and you have two soldiers at the foot of the cross essentially playing dice for his clothes. They're two feet away from the Messiah. They're two feet away of the Creator in the flesh, and they don't see him. And these two don't see him. Why? This is spiritual blindness. And in verse 16, it says they're being kept. They're being kept. By who? Well, it has to be Jesus. Jesus is actually keeping them from realizing who he is. I mean, haven't you seen this, Christian, in your own life? You, uh, you look back and you say, wow, God was doing that. Why didn't I see that? Absolute blindness. You talk to two people. They have the same experience. And one of them says, Jesus is amazing and real. And the other one goes, that is stupid. You're an idiot. I've told this story before, but I, I know a family, very close family to me actually, where the mom is miraculously healed by two women who come into the room and say, I'm not going to say her name, so I'll just say Dorothy. Get up, Dorothy, and walk. She's been in bed a year, and she walked. The sons are in the room. The younger son remembers it like it was yesterday and recall the whole thing. The older son can't remember it at all and never talks about it. The younger son has been a pastor for four decades. The older son is not a believer. Why does that one remember and can remember exactly what happened and the other one doesn't? Spiritual blindness. Luke drives the point home that belief in the resurrection isn't always about objective facts. In fact, you can get overwhelmed with the objectivity of the resurrection and it still not be enough and you think it's dumb. But you know what else is spiritual blindness? Hoping in the wrong 
Messiah. This is the wrong, or another way, diagnosing your problem wrong. And this is what Cleopas' problem is. You, you know this, right? Like if the doctor gives you uh, a diagnosis that's wrong and then prescribes you the medicine for it, things are going to go sideways, right? I'll just give you two instances in my own life. The first one is I'm a, this isn't the doctor's fault, this is my fault, and you'll see why in a second. I was one year into my marriage, and I had a lump on my leg. And so uh, I, we, I went, and I got a biopsy. A week later, I get a phone call, and it says, all good. Uh, it's not, no problems, just uh, some deposit of something, it's still there, whatever. I call Amy, and I say, Amy, guess what? It's malignant. And she's crying. And I'm like, my marriage is in shambles because I just told her I'm healthy. And she's crying on the phone. And I say, what's wrong? She goes, it's malignant. I'm like, it's benign. I'm sorry. Now, <laughs> I'm going to skip over for a second what she said next because she'd have to confess, okay? But listen, listen. The emotional response was based on what? Wrong diagnosis by me. Just a few years ago, I was diagnosed with, with something, and the doctor gave me medicine. I, I was actually came here on a Monday, Thursday service, and my hands were shaking like this. I couldn't stand up. I think they gave me the wrong medicine. They gave me the wrong diagnosis. Uh, Jer someone in our church came up to me and says, you should probably stop taking that. And I did, and six hours later, I was fine. Cleopas has the wrong diagnosis for his problem. He's looking for something else. He's looking for uh, a different answer. Here he is in verse 20. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. Now, notice what he had hoped. He is hoping for one thing, political redemption, get rid of the oppressor, what he admits is that the Messiah wasn't coming for political redemption. Cleopas is looking for a salvation from circumstances. He's not looking for salvation because of spiritual slavery. And Jesus is going to go after Cle Cleopas for missing the deeper point, that he has come to rescue him from a certain kind of slavery. And what Jesus is going to press home now is that anything outside of him will enslave you. <laughs> will enslave you. I'll just give you a, a simple example from life. Uh, maybe you remember growing up, or if you have kids, you've experienced this, but you sign up for youth sports, and you're so excited, and it's going to give you joy, and uh, then you get the calendar, and it's 15 weekends, and you think, okay, we're going to do it, and you get about four weekends in, and all of a sudden, what has it done? It has enslaved your family. And the thing that you thought was going to give you joy, now you're sitting at the kitchen table going, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And every event you go to, you complain about the thing that you thought was going to bring you joy at the beginning. What is that? That's enslavement. I was talking this week to an alcoholic. They start on alcohol's way because it gives them joy, gives them joy, gives them joy. And then the senses get dulled and then it eventually doesn't become the thing that gives you joy. It's the thing that enslaves you. And you need that thing in order to remain enslaved and you can't get out. It just keeps going over and over again. Enslavement, enslavement, enslavement. And so Cleopas saying, Lord, we, we expected a Messiah that was going to save us from our circumstances, the Roman rulers. 
And really, Jesus says, actually, uh, you missed it. Uh, You're spiritually blind. You don't understand the depth of your need. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you will say that I typically go to God to be rescued from a circumstance. Right? Like, how many of us have come to faith in Christ because you needed help from him because you were like, my, my job, my marriage, my whatever, and you, you are looking for redemption in those things. And then you come out of it going, actually, I need to be redeemed from something deeper and more. That's where this is going. So the blindness leads to dejection, and now Jesus is going to unlock for them what they're missing. So this is second, the incognito rebuke. And this is incognito because Jesus has sauntered up to them and they have no idea who he is. So the women in the passage, uh, they get rebuked by angels, the passage right before this in Luke 24. And now this time Jesus does the rebuking. Here it is, and I've been preaching Acts forever, but this is Luke 25 and 26. How foolish you are, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did the Messiah... Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? What what can that mean? Would you call them non-Bible-believing Jews? No, they're Bible-believing Jews. They believe the Old Testament. They live it. They read it, if they can read, or they listen to it. They certainly believed the prophets. And so when Jesus says, how foolish of you to not listen to the prophets, That's not saying, oh, you haven't been reading your Bible. I mean, notice it. He doesn't rebuke them for not believing the women. He doesn't rebuke them for not recognizing him. He rebukes them for not reading scripture with understanding. They had missed the story. And it's not just them. If you read first century Judaism and the time period before uh, Jesus' arrival, there is not one writing about a suffering Messiah. There's no category for it. And so Jesus does Bible study. At the beginning, verse, next verse, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. Now, I wish you would underline and circle and highlight this verse. You could write in your Bible, the greatest Bible study of all time. That word explain is the word we get our word is from the, uh, the word we get our word hermeneutics, which just means the science of interpretation. It's now the word of God, Jesus explaining the word of God, and it's not like Jesus hadn't told people this. He's told them many times what's supposed to happen, but now he drops the hammer. In fact, a few verses later to his disciples, verse forty-four, he says the same thing. This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled. Uh, about me that is in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalm. So law of Moses, that first five books, the prophets, major and minor, and the psalms, that's poetry. He says this in John's gospel too. For you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Or even the apostle Paul, kind of the climactic verse, I think, of thinking of the Bible this way, 2 Corinthians 1, this is one of his letters. All the promises of God are yes in him. So if you interpret the Bible in a way that does not point to Jesus, the thing, uh, then you are not interpreting the Bible the correct way. 
You have all these passages in the Old Testament, and then you have the New Testament writers over and over and over again talking about these passages over and over and over again. I mean, even in Luke 24, here's Luke 24, 25. All the prophets have spoken, Luke 24, 27. Moses and all the prophets, Luke 24, 27. All the scriptures, Luke 24, 44. The law and Moses and prophets and Psalms, 24, 32. The scriptures, like over and over again, what is Jesus trying to get, get to? He's getting to this book in the end is about me. All of it. All of it. And so that's why for the next 12 weeks, we're going to go through this book and show you that all of it is about Jesus. That he is the seed of Abraham, that he's the slaughtered lamb, that he's the Davidic king, that he's the creator, that he's actually the temple, that we're the temple, that he's the great priest, that we're, that we're the royal priesthood, that we could go on and on and on, that ultimately every story, every hero, every event all points to Jesus, all of it. And he, in the end of this chapter, gives a mission. Now, you've got to go out and tell people this story. Now, here's the thing. If you don't know the story, how are you supposed to tell uh, people about it, right? Like, if you just, you know, pick and choose your Bible verses and don't really have a feel for what's going on. I, I feel this most when you're sharing the gospel with people who've never read the Bible or who are living outside in, in different cultures and different religious groups. So you say, Jesus died for your sin. What is sin? Why did he have to die? I don't understand. Why can't I just ask for forgiveness? Isn't, isn't that enough? You say, you're a sinner. What does that mean? Je Jesus is king. Why does that matter? I had a professor. He used to do uh, sharing the gospel by just four verses. And then he realized the international students, none of them were becoming Christians because they just had zero concept of any of the words he was talking about. And so he began with Genesis 1, started telling stories of the Bible. Over and over again, the story of the Bible, trying to weave it through the lens of Jesus. And you know what? All of them started coming to faith in Christ. Let me give you an example of reading the Bible the way I'm talking about, and I'm ripping this off from many other people. What, what, what is the story of King David about? Well, the American Christian subculture knows it's about facing the giants. We made a movie about it. And we say, well, we're supposed to be like David and we're supposed to overcome our giants and <clears throat> when we overcome fear, then we're, we're trusting God. But don't follow David so much because he's also a murderer and he was a terrible father and his kids are an absolute mess. But leave that to the side. Isn't David amazing? We, we should trust. But what if that's not the point? What if that's not the point? What if Jesus is the greater David? What if when you read the story of David, you don't insert yourself into the story of David, is that you see yourself as the crowd in fear, not the one who's overcoming? What does David do? If David wins, he wins for God's people. If David receives honor, God's people receive honor. And so here comes Jesus claiming to be David, the son of David. The Davidic king, Jesus is the Davidic king. G David gets honor for God's people by slaying a giant. Jesus overcomes sin and death by dying for God's people in order to rescue them. You see the difference? So why does he have to be a suffering Messiah? Why, why does this rebuke center around that? Why have they missed it? Why have they missed spiritual bondage? Well, the Apostle Paul will say, you know, we're, we're in spiritual bondage, we're slaves to sin, but that the wages of 
the wages of sin is death and the gift of God, right, is eternal life. What is that? Who pays the wage? We will, unless someone else does. What is that a story of? It's the story of redemption, delivering someone from slavery with the payment to pay the cost. So that's an incognito rebuke. You've read your Bible wrong. So here is the heart strangely warmed. Last thing. Bible study is over, and they still don't recognize him. Is that crazy? They still don't recognize him. But something is going on inside of them. I want you to now show you how normal people become Christians. This is not miraculous. This is just normal. First, Christ comes into your life, and you don't even realize it. He's walking with you on the side of the road, and you don't recognize him. Here it is, verse 28. They approached the village to, to which they were going. Jesus continued as they, they were, he was going farther, but they urged him, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he stayed. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Just as an aside, if you want to do a great Bible study, do it on the meals of the Bible. Here is one of the meals. Their perception of Jesus has nothing to do with them. In fact, it says essentially Jesus is the one that unblinded them. This is not personal accomplishment like, like, wow, we finally figured it out. This is Jesus going, and now you can see me. I mean, how many college students have shown up across the street and someone comes to them and shares the gospel with them and they say, why hasn't anyone told me this before? And then as they think about it, about seven people have. And in that moment, they get it. You know, in 2008, uh, my friend Eric died in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm going to the funeral. I'm on a flight from Detroit to Lexington. And the seat in front of me is broken. The seat uh, next to me is open. Everyone boards the plane. There's a couple seats open. And in walks the last woman. And I'm just praying, please no, please no. <laughs> Please no. I want to sit by myself. I'm going to a funeral. Please no. Please no. Please no. Please no. Please no. Oh, your seat's broken. Come and sit next to me. And so she sits next to me. And she, she's, she's actually the mom of a really famous musician, stepmom. And she begins talking because that's what pe people do, I guess. And she begins talking to me about, there's all these people that are talking to me about Jesus. And then she turns, do you know anything about speaking in tongues? I'm like, no, I don't. And then she's She's talking to me about the gospel, and I'm like, okay, Lord. And I just begin to talk to her. And in that, on that plane, broken seat, that, that was her seat. She's now next to me. I'm, I'm not even doing anything. She's sharing the gospel with herself as I'm asking questions, and she's coming to Christ. What is that? That is God-appointed moments where the chess pieces get moved around, Right? Or Acts chapter 8, my favorite story. Philip runs up to this chariot. There's the finance minister from Ethiopia. He's traveled 1,500 miles. He's gone to Jerusalem. He hasn't been able to worship in the temple because he's a eunuch. He turns around. He's got a scroll of Isaiah. How is that even possible? Philip travels 50 miles. The Ethiopian eunuch, 1,500 miles. And they just bump into each other on the side of the road. And Philip turns and goes, hey, what are you reading? I mean, here's this Jewish man Here's this Ethiopian eunuch who aren't supposed to interact with one another, and he's sharing the gospel. Do you think Philip woke up that morning and was like, I'm going to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch? Do you think the eunuch woke up this morning and said, I think a Jewish guy is going to come and explain this whole thing to me. 
I'm going to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy this morning. No. Notice something about Luke 24 now. There's probably an easier way for Jesus to open their eyes. You know what that way was? Hey, guys, look. He didn't do that. What did he do? He said, hey, guys, guess I don't need those. Hey, guys, look. Bible study. Interpreting God's word. He opened it to them. He explained it to them. He draws them in with scripture. And what's the response? Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning? John Wesley, May 24, 1738. He says in his journal, I went, to un- I went unwillingly. Anyone been to a Bible study unwillingly? I went unwillingly. And someone was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans about a quarter before nine. While he was describing the change that God works in people's heart, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ in that moment, Christ alone. He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of death. Pascal, journal, November 23rd, 1654. From about half past, half past 10 in the night to about half past midnight, fire. Ever write that in a journal? Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. The evangelism strategy was, here's the Bible. Open it up. Explain it to somebody. Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Listen. Have you ever had your heart set aflame, not by the Holy Spirit in some experience, that's important too, but just by this thing? I remember two years ago, someone came up to me after a sermon and said, I felt my heart being physically changed as you were preaching. That the heart in some way just gets crushed by the word of God. And so that out of that comes a flame. I've had this happen to me, this is what happens. The whole world goes into portrait mode and everything gets super focused. Whoever's teaching the Bible, whoever's explaining the Bible, and something inside of me just bursts. You know, me and my very controlled emotion. When I say burst, I go, hmm. (laughs) That's huge. That's big time. (laughs) Lord, make our hearts on fire. Hearts that are excited Literally about anything else, right? Make our hearts on fire. Break our, ho- our cold hearts as we hold the Bible in our hands. Spiritual blindness led to dejection. It should for everyone. Jesus isn't risen. The incognito rebuke was about how to read the Bible. Jesus at the center. And then the response, a heart strangely warmed. Might all our hearts be that way as we open God's word every week and home at home with our families. Let's pray. Lord, may everyone's world fall into portrait mode and get really blurry. And the intensity of your word becomes so bright that it sets a fire inside of them that will just burst. Burst with joy. Joy, 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 tears of joy. May it be fire. May we all, may everyone here not be afraid to experience the fire of the word of God.
as it comes into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing as we respond.